sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Well, this spring, the Supreme Court dropped a bombshell on the nation with lots of very strong opinions from many quarters. A decision that purports in draft form, no less, to overturn the Roe versus Wade decision legalizing abortion. So my guest today, Rama Abdulalim, is executive director of Karama, Muslim Women Lawyers for Human Rights. And I thought it would be especially appropriate to explore not the views of abortion that we're all familiar with if we're in the mainstream Christian camp, but other perspectives on abortion and on what the law regarding abortion looks like in terms of the religious freedom of other Americans. So, Rama, thank you so much for doing this show with me and being with me on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. And I must say at the outset for our listeners that Rama and I have gotten very well acquainted serving on an American Bar Association committee that uh, deals with religious liberty issues and, and planning programming for the broader legal community. That's been a really good time, and I've really appreciated your contribution to uh, to our committee work. But well, let's start off this way. I don't know very much, and I'm sure our, our listeners probably uh, don't know much more than I do, about the the Muslim teachings about when life begins, about when or whether abortion is appropriate under some circumstances. Why don't you give us a, a brief introduction? Okay, so for Muslims, just to step back, we don't have a hierarchy of like ministers, priests, any kind of central place that makes all the rules that everybody agrees with. So in Islam, we don't have that. So from the very beginning, there were a lot of different schools of thought. There are four main ones now in the Sunni part of the religion. The Shia have their own school of thought. So all those schools of thought came up with different interpretations. And I'm going to throw out a word that I know that we're going to have to come back and talk about later. But people say, oh, they're trying to bring Sharia here. But Sharia is just the laws that Muslims live by. And every interpretation of Sharia was different. So you can have people who, you know, most of the time, almost all the schools agree that four months plus one week is when the fetus is ensouled. And so for Muslims, we don't believe that abortion is a crime and it is something that you can do up into basically four months in one week. There are some schools of thought that, you know, put it down to 120, then to 80 days and to 40 days. But what all the schools of thought have in common is that none of them are at conception the way the Christian school of thought is. So there's no as soon as the sperm fertilizes the egg and is implanted, it is conceived. There's no like conception for Muslims. So we believe the science, but we have 40 days plus another 40 plus another 40. So the first 40 days, we feel like you were just like a congealed clot. 
and then you turn into flesh and then we feel that the angel ensouls you. So that's why it's, you know, 40 plus 40 plus 40. So most people are 10 days after the fourth month of pregnancy. Very interesting. So first off, I just want to clarify that from, you know, the concept of ensoulment in the Christian tradition is really uh, very specific to Roman Catholicism. I don't know anything about orthodoxy as such in this regard, but it is not a Protestant concept. And uh, my understanding in the Roman Catholic construct, it's based on the concept of the immortality of the soul, which really was a Greek idea before it came into the Christian church. I would contend it has no biblical basis whatsoever, but the allegedly immortal soul enters the fetus at the moment of conception, or as you use the term, is ensouled. So that's a Catholic concept. To be sure, Protestants have um, uh, seemed to have kind of verged and accepted more and more Catholic leading, at least with respect to abortion. But here we are, and we're expecting to see, you know, a relatively permissive legal scheme now become much more restrictive. Does this raise a religious freedom concern or issue for Muslim women? So, yeah, we do believe that. And we actually filed an amicus brief in the Dobbs case. And it was because we feel that the Mississippi law and a lot of the other laws in the various jurisdictions, as you know, Oklahoma recently did one, are based on the Christian view of when life begins. And so it is now saying this is the Christian view and this is the law is based on the Christian view of when life begins as the really the starting point. And that is not what Muslims believe. And we really feel that Muslim women will be the ones who are really going to really feel this issue, because even though their religious faith allows them to have abortions, if they live in certain states, since we're assuming that Roe v. Wade will be overturned, they will not be allowed to practice their religion and be able to, under our religious faith, have a abortion. So let's try to unpack this a little bit, because I, I certainly understand that Muslim women are permitted to have abortions during that first four months plus one week period. But, you know, the language of religious freedom case law typically talks in terms of placing a burden on religious exercise. You know, does a, a government restriction somehow place a burden on a religious practice? And I'm not sure from what I'm hearing that uh, that having an abortion at, you know, at an early stage is really a religious practice so much as it is um, permissive. And I would agree with you, it is permissive, but I think part of the issue for us is still that why are we relying on what a certain religious group says is conception? You know, that's a child. Because what we usually get from a lot of the talking points is that baby, this baby, that baby. And for Muslims, that's not our belief that there is a baby at conception. Right. So really problematic that we are now going to be forced to respect the laws of the land, because that's what Muslims are taught, is that we have to respect the laws of the land. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, we have to respect that. We can't say, oh, we're not going to take, you know, we're not going to do that because we disagree. But it's the issue that now it's become, this is the Christian view on abortion. 
you know, what's next? This is the Christian view on what other topic. And we're now going to be really regulated based on a certain community's view. And we feel that's problematic, especially here when there's not supposed to be a state religion. So I think that gets to the heart of the problem. You know, your legal brief challenged this as an establishment of religion. You know, that we're supposed to have government neutrality towards religion. And essentially what Mississippi is doing and what the Supreme Court seems poised to endorse is preferring a very narrow sectarian view of when life begins. And it's okay to establish that even requiring people who have differing beliefs to live under that. And, you know, what I'm perceiving as we have this conversation is uh, it feels like being a second-class citizen in your own country. Is that fair? Correct. So, yes, for me, I feel that this will be treating any group that is not a specific religion that supports the Roe v. Wade, the very particular Christian view of life beginning. So it would just not just be Muslims. It'd be Jews, atheists, agnostics, Hindus, you know, Sikhs, anybody who is not Christian who has power will be feel like a second class citizen that our religious beliefs aren't sufficient, you know, and are not really recognized. So, you know, I'm trying to think of the best example because, you know, many Christians, when they hear you say that, are probably quite content with saying, well, yeah, this is a Christian country. And so, uh, yeah, Muslims are not, they are second class citizens, and that's the way it should be. Uh, that's certainly not the way our Constitution was established. I can think of quotes from several of our founding fathers that were quite explicit that this should be a nation where Muslims, among others, have full religious freedom. And yet, uh, sadly, I think there are many Christians who, who would disagree with that. Uh, it's fascinating to me because this country was founded on people escaping religious persecution. And now it's become like, so now that we're the cool kids and in charge, we can now persecute others. And so that's what's so fascinating to me is that that's where I feel that we're, we have become. It's that if we are cool enough and accepted, you know, you're okay. So if you agree with us on every issue, you know, Abrahamic faith, I think a lot of Muslims are always surprised. Like, oh, we're Abrahamic faith too. Yes, we are, but we have differences from Christian and Jews. And this is just one example of a difference of theology. And really, this difference is huge for us. And so really focusing on the fact that here in America, we're supposed to have this freedom of religion, and it really doesn't feel like going back to the Constitution and the constitutionalism arguments are really being supportive of, you know, minority religions. Well, you know, there certainly are plenty of examples where Christians are aware that in some predominantly Muslim countries, Christians have second class status because there's very strong uh, establishment of, of, you know, the majority Muslim faith. And um, I just think that if we object to Christians being treated as second-class citizens in some Muslim countries, you know, it's the height of hypocrisy for us then to turn around and say, uh, okay, well, then we get to treat Muslims as second-class citizens in, quote, our country. You know, to me, 
after 9-11, one of the takeaways for me from the whole, uh, what, what appeared to be sort of a, a conflict between uh, a certain type of Muslim ideas and Western ideas, you know, what I think President Bush called the battle for hearts and minds. You know, do we promote freedom and human rights globally at the point of a gun, which really doesn't work very well, or do we do it by example? And I think example is the best way, that by respecting religious freedom and by having an immigration policy that continues to allow us to educate the best and brightest, uh, you know, the leadership of other nations that are going to go back and, and provide leadership, and they see what a free society can look like, I think the more we can protect everyone, the better off, uh, the better, use the term, evangelize the world in the blessings of liberty. And I agree with you. I think that the idea that somehow what's happening in the U.S. is not affecting people's view of us worldwide, because think about the excuse that people use, it. well, America, they hate Muslims. You know, like that's one of the first excuses that terrorists use when they're like, oh, that's why we need to attack America, because they hate Muslims. And they will just continue to use examples of ways in which Muslims don't feel as if they are being given the same protections. And so I totally agree. I think that the U.S., if they, we really want to be the leader of the world, we have to show that we are actually living up to the ideals of our Constitution. And one of our ideals is religious freedom. And, you know, we don't have time for this conversation today, but I think that Americans would have a lot less hatred for Muslims if they actually knew anything about Islam and had some Muslim friends. But that'll be a discussion for another day. Our guest today has been Rama Abdulalim, my colleague on the American Bar Association Religious Liberty Committee and Executive Director of Karama Muslim Women Lawyers for Human Rights. Rama, thank you so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you for having me. And as we close, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.